moment in scripture today. I always get excited to preach about this time, this moment in which Jesus walks on water. And I think a great question to start with today is this, why? Why did Jesus walk on water? I, I, I think that the, the answer to that question is so important for us to consider as we go into this moment in scripture. Why did he walk on water? There's a, there's a verse in this account of Jesus walking on the water that's unique in Mark. And so you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and when you're studying these Gospels, these moments that we're studying are sometimes in two of the Gospels, uh, like last week, the, the five loaves of bread and two fish, that's in all four Gospels, that's really rare, only the resurrection and that miracle is in all four Gospels. Most of the miracles that take place are just in two, sometimes three, or maybe just one Gospel. And, and so... We, you got to put all those together to get the fullest picture of what's happening. And so we get a unique detail in, in Mark's gospel that helps us to understand why Jesus walked on water. And so it's almost kind of the, I'm starting with the conclusion. You're not supposed to do that when you preach. You're supposed to save the conclusion until the end. But I, I want to start with it today. Just look at verse 52 of chapter 6. Uh, and, and we'll start with that. It says, they were utterly astounded. This is, just, this is just after Jesus had walked on water before them, which we're going to study in depth. Their, their response is this. They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. What a unique detail to get in this gospel. They were utterly astounded at Jesus walking on the water because they didn't understand the miracle that had just happened before it. When he multiplied the five loaves of bread and two fish to the point in which he fed upwards of 20,000 people with 12 baskets of leftovers. They didn't fully understand that. So Jesus had to walk on water so that they could get a better understanding of who he was and what he came to do. So they could have an understanding of Jesus with precision. Isn't that what we want when we go into the Word? When we go into the Bible, we want to know who Jesus is. And so we go to the Word to let God's Word define who Jesus is. So when it came to the loaves and the fishes, uh, and the fishes, just, we're going to say that's a word today. When it came to, when it came to the fishes, <laughs> I'm committed to it now. Uh, they, they were getting the wrong idea. They wanted to take him by force and make him king. Now that may sound like a good thing. Well, isn't that what he came to be, the king? King Jesus, the Messiah, or how, how the, the Greek word would, would say, the Christ? Isn't that what he came to do? Well, yes, he came to be the Messiah, but not in the way that they understood. And so they wanted someone to come in like a, like a zealot and take over. Rome had, had occupied Israel for years. They were under their thumb, and they wanted a leader to rise up and be king and to take them out from under the control of Rome. And so they, they thought they had this king that they wanted in Jesus. They wanted a better lifestyle. They, they just wanted the, their problems fixed in the here and now. They weren't able to see beyond that. They didn't understand the magnitude of, to, that, uh, to which Jesus came, the, the magnitude of who he was. They were willing to settle for these miracles, and that's it. But Jesus came for something much, much more. So don't miss the fact 
that the disciples, they had the same misconception. They, they were living with Jesus. They were his disciples. They were learning directly from him. They were preaching the gospel he told them to preach. But even they couldn't see past the here and now. They still didn't quite grasp the magnitude of who he was. And so Jesus had to walk on water. So we're going to start at verse 45. And it probably is uh, titled, Jesus Walks on Water in your Bible. Let's just take the first couple of, of verses here. It says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. So again, immediate context, he had just multiplied the loaves of bread and the fish, and he, uh, the, the crowd was whipped up into a frenzy, let's make this guy king, now's our time, let's raise up, let's build this army, let's, let's take over Israel in the name of God, this is our Messiah, our king, to get this done. He's like, no, 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 that's not what this is. That's not what this is. And as the crowd of upwards of 20,000 people gets whipped up into a frenzy, he tells the disciples, no, we're shutting this down. Get in the boat and just go. Get to the other side. And he tells the crowd, this is over. Go away. We're done here. He was frustrated. He was really frustrated with, with the disciples. He was frustrated with the people. They weren't getting what he was trying to lay down. They weren't getting his message in the way he intended them to. And so he just sent them all away and he got away to pray. He went up to the mountain to pray, just to get alone with the Father in prayer. This is the, this is the second time he's done this. Don't, don't, don't uh, just scan past that too quickly, right? I don't want to rehash this teaching point, but anytime you see Jesus getting away to pray, he's frustrated, he has to spend time alone with the Father that's always a lesson to us to do the same. You want to live like Jesus? You want to be like him? You want to be a Christian? You want to be Christ-like? In all those moments of frustration that you inevitably live through, get away to pray. Take time to spend with, with your Father in heaven in prayer. We need, to, need to, we need to get away in prayer, especially when we're frustrated. But I'm not going to rehash that talking point again because we've got a lot of ground to cover here. Let's pick up in verse 47 and take it through 48. It says, And when evening came, the boat was, about, or the boat was out, on the other, out on the sea, and he was alone on land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. Okay, a lot of things happening there. Jesus decides, I'm frustrated, I'm sending everyone away, I need to get up to the mountain and pray. I need to spend some time in prayer, and he's praying all night. He's alone, on land, praying. The, the disciples are out on the sea, and it says that they were making headway painfully. Now, these are experienced fishermen, we're told this over and over in scripture, but here they are, out on the Sea of Galilee, which is also, like, it, it's actually a lake, it's also known as Lake Tiberias. They're, here they are, out on the Sea of Galilee, and they're in a storm, again, if you remember, they had been on the storm, and things had gotten dangerous just recently, just a, a, just a few pages back in chapter 4, when Jesus calms the storm. Jesus was with them on the boat, and we talked about how storms can happen suddenly in that part of the world due, due to the, the climate and the cliff and how low uh, the, the Sea of Galilee sits. And so 
they're in a, they were in a storm with Jesus. Jesus was asleep, if you remember. It had been a long day of ministry. They're caught in this storm, and they're, they're taking on water. Things are going bad. Jesus is over there sleeping, and they're like, don't you even care? We're getting ready to die. Jesus, what are you doing? And he gets, gets up and rebukes them all and the storm. It's incredible. And so here they are. They're just a couple chapters down the road. They're back in a storm, only this time Jesus is not with them. If he was with them, no doubt they'd be like, hey, find Jesus. He told the storm to be quiet, and it, it obeyed him, right? They were, remember their response? Who is this then that the, even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, he's not with them this time. It's interesting, though, that question. They're starting to pick up on the fact that he's more than meets the eye. But we're told in that verse 52, again, they're not quite there yet. Their hearts have been hardened and they don't understand the miracles in, the, in their entirety and the magnitude of what they mean. But here they are back out on the sea, and they're making headway painfully. How painfully? Well, it's about the fourth watch of the night. Now, that tells us a lot. When In, in the Roman military, they would have four watches. The first one would start at 6 o'clock. From 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., that's the first watch. And then after that, 9 to 12, that's the second watch. 12 to 3 is the third watch. The fourth watch of the night then is from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So that tips us off. Immediately something is incredibly wrong here. Things are not going according to plan. Now they had stayed later in the evening. Remember the disciples whenever uh, Jesus multiplied the loaves of bread and the fish. He says to them, or the disciples were like, hey, we better let these people go. You know, it's, it's later in the day. They got to get home for dinner. And then Jesus does the miracle. And so we know they probably did get a later start that day. But there's no way they're still out on the Sea of Galilee in the fourth watch of the night without having major complications. They're out there as experienced fishermen. And they can't get to where they want to go because the wind is against them. They are struggling they're terrified. A storm is stopping them from getting to where they need to go. And Jesus perceives that they are in trouble. And so he's alone on land. Remember, he's on the mountain. And in prayer, he decides to, to go to them, to walk to them on the sea. How does he know they're in trouble? Well, some people say it could be, you know, that he was on, on the mountain to pray. We talked about the elevated cliffs that are surrounding the Sea of Galilee. It could be that he was up high enough that he could see them. But it's a storm. Typically, um, when it's storming outside, you can't see very far into the Sea of Galilee. We know when we read the other accounts of this moment, they're out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And so it's very unlikely you're going to be able to see for that many miles through a storm. And so it's likely that this is yet another miracle within this miraculous moment. That as Jesus, who is evidently up all night praying, it's in the fourth watch of the night, and he's still in prayer. That's no surprise. We see him praying all night, and people can't hang with him in, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane later in the Gospel. But he perceives in prayer, through his divine nature, that they are in trouble, and he needs to go to them. Now, to the disciples, nothing's going according to plan. They don't understand the loaves and the fish. They don't understand Jesus sending them away. They don't understand Jesus sending the crowds away. Oh, isn't this what you wanted? And now they're out in the middle of the sea. And, 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 and they're not, but I think everything's going according to plan when it comes to God, right? It's going perfectly according to plan. And Jesus in prayer perceives this opportunity to go to them. How does he get from the mountain to the sea? 
We're not given those details, but he walks on the sea. And so if he's walking on the sea, how he got from the mountain to the sea could have been equally as miraculous. But he's walking on the sea in a storm. Now, again, typically we think of that moment in which Jesus is walking on water with this really calm setting and, you know, like he's walking on glass. But he's in a storm. You know, the winds are churning, the, 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 the waves are in the, the rain coming in sideways. That's the visual I kind of had in, in my mind as I think about this moment. He's walking through the storm, a storm that's so bad it's threatening the lives of the disciples. And here they are in danger. And what does it say that he meant to do? He meant to pass by them. Why does it say that? It doesn't say that in any other account. He meant to pass by them. Oh, the disciples are in trouble. I better go to them. And I intend to pass by them when I see them. <laughs> like, that doesn't make any sense to us when we read it that way. And it's really interesting whenever you go into the commentaries and, and you're trying to hear what the scholars have to say about this moment. Now, some of them say this is a translation problem here. Like, whenever you're trying to translate into English, it's just very difficult and so he meant to pass by them would probably be, be better rendered. It seemed as though he meant to pass by them. Like, as in they would be on the boat, and it seemed like he was going to pass us by, but he didn't. Some translators try to say that that's what's happening here. Other translators will say, no, the intent of this passage, he meant to pass by them, meant that he was trying to, to uh, put his divinity on, the, or his deity on display, and walk by them in a way that would inspire them to keep going in the right direction. There's Jesus walking on the water, and so now we're going we're gonna to row harder to get to where Jesus is going, and he would lead them in the right direction. So he intended, therefore, to pass by them. Those are, those are two of your options, and they're fine options. Option number three, though, is my favorite. Here's what most scholars think is happening here, and this happens a lot when you read the New Testament. This is an echo of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, whenever Moses is speaking to God, this, you, you can read about this in Exodus 33, he asks God if he can see his glory. And so what happens? In Exodus 33:18, God says to Moses, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. So God passes by him. When in 1 Kings 19, 10 through 12, we see another moment with the prophet Elijah. And he asks to see God's glory. And, and, and God says to him, stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. These are two of the most known moments in the Old Testament. These are moments that any first century believer would have in their memory bank. This, is, this would have been talked about all the time. Some of the most famous moments of the Old Testament. And so now here Jesus is, he intended to pass by them. And this means he intends to reveal his glory to his followers. Now anytime God reveals his glory in the Old Testament, it's a terrifying experience. A terrifying experience. The glory of God is too much for us. So we have a terrifying response after Jesus intends to pass by them. When his glory is revealed, walking on water, something supernatural, his disciples respond like this. Look at verses 49 and 50. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But, he, but immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. 
you ever seen something so unexpected or experienced something that was just so unexpected that you, you don't know how to process it, and it's not until after a, a, a lot of time processing what just happened that you actually realize what is happening before you. And so when we, when we get in those moments, it's hard to tell what our brain tells us we're seeing, right? Sometimes we can be so thrown off, like, what, like we don't have a category for what we're seeing. We've never seen anything like this before. And so our brain has to tell us something. Here's, this must be what you're thinking. And so the, the, the disciples... When they see Jesus walking on the water, their first inclination is, is this a ghost? This must be a ghost. Now, is this proof that the disciples believed in ghosts? Uh-oh. No. <laughs> it's amazing how many conversations I get into as a pastor that are uh, all over the place. But, you know, people are so willing to believe in ghosts, and it's like, uh, it, it's, it's painful. But they, everybody, want, and, and Marietta, we're the worst. We love our ghost stories in Marietta, right? And I do, I do want to take the ghost tour downtown. That, that is appealing to me for fun. Uh, but no, I don't believe in ghosts. But in, in, our, in our area, we have a lot of beliefs that certain places are haunted and, and you know, you can stay in the Lafayette Hotel. I, 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 I had a pastor friend of mine staying in the Lafayette Hotel once, and he, he swears up and down he encountered a ghost while he was there. So even pastors I know love ghosts and ghost stories and believe in ghosts and I find I'm, I'm like I'm having lunch with him the next day and I'm arguing about whether or not he encountered a ghost like that was my day like no stop it no stop it like <laughs> that's that's not what happened ghost stories are fun and, but no stop it and I love the shows like ghost hunters like when you watch like when you just want to deaden your mind and numb out on something like those shows where guys go to old buildings or whatever and they, they got their night vision cameras because ghosts only do things at night. Everybody knows that, right? And, and they're going around with their night vision camera. I would love to hang out with those guys and perform with them, honestly. It would be fun. Like, did you hear that? Dude, did you hear that? And then they just take off running, you know? Like, the, it's awesome. It's great entertainment. It's just like, you know, the, the Bigfoot shows, you know? Ah, something smells squatchy around here. <laughs> Definitely, that's, that's Bigfoot droppings. Scat, Bigfoot scat right there, you know. I, 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 like, I like all that stuff too. <laughs> but come on. Uh, there, there's no ghosts. We, don't, we have no scriptural evidence whatsoever that we turn into ghosts. And if we did, like what kind of life is the ghost having that we believe? You think of all these different cultural ideas that we have about ghosts. And, you know, we've all seen poltergeists and, and ghostbusters and things like that. That's what, what I would have grown up watching. Why did my parents let me watch Poltergeist at like eight years old? I don't know, but I did. But you know, you think of all these things like, like if, if, that's, if that really is what happens when we die, do we all revert back to like 12-year-old pranksters? Hey, when they go to sleep, let's open up all the cabinets and shake the silverware. Oh, we're going to get them so good. <laughs> like, is that really what someone, that we're going to get to do that for eternity. We're going to prank people for eternity. Oh, man, that would be uh, some eternity. <laughs> but No. Uh, can't wait for tomorrow night. No, because can't do anything in the daytime. Well, just like today, in their time, there were all sorts of cultural ideas about ghosts. So they didn't have poltergeists to watch. They didn't watch Ghostbusters. They didn't have any idea of, of Slimer. But in their day, there were a tremendous amount of stories floating around culturally, cultural beliefs, other religions, and things like that. As a matter of fact, there was a belief that was really common in their part of the world 
that when you died, your family needed to put a coin in your mouth or in your hand. And so they would bury you with money in your mouth. And that's so whenever you passed into the afterlife, you would go to a ferry and take the ferry across the sea to the other side in eternity. Well, that ferry, the people that operate that ferry have to make a living too. You have to pay to get on that ferry. So if your family didn't put money in your mouth when you died, you would go up there to pay the fare and you didn't have any cash on you. And they're like, sorry, buddy, you have to roam the sea for eternity. You couldn't go to the other side. You just walk around the ocean for the rest of your life. That was floating around in the back of their minds because that's some of the cultural beliefs that existed in that day. And so when they're out on the boat, they, they're thinking, we've been rowing for hours. We can't get there. We're dying. We're running out of gas. We can't, we're, we're frustrated. And then they see someone walking on the sea. The only category, because what they're seeing is so unexpected, the only category they have for what they're seeing, is this a ghost? Is that what we're seeing right now? They thought they were seeing a ghost. They cried out and they were terrified. And Jesus responds to them. He says, take heart. It is I. Be not afraid. Now here's something we're not seeing in the English. It is I. It is I. In the Greek is ego emi. It could also be translated and is translated when it's this way in the Bible as I am. He says, Take heart, I am. Boy, that's a really common phrase that Jesus uses, isn't it? We have those seven great uh, I am statements in the Gospel of John where he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. It's super common. And it's very, very intentional. Every time he says, I am, referring to himself, it's an echo of the Old Testament. When God refers to himself as I am. You remember Moses talking to God in the burning bush, Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Moses is like, hey, when you send me to your people, who, who shall I say sent me? When I go talk to Pharaoh, who shall I say sent me? And God says, I am, ego emi, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so when you're reading the Old Testament, anytime you see Lord in all capitals, you are reading I am. And so that's all over the Old Testament when you're reading those Psalms. Anytime it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, you are reading I am or ego emi. Okay? In the Hebrew, it would be Yahweh. And so we just sang Yahweh in that song earlier in worship. And that is that Hebrew four-letter word, I am. Now there's more than four-letter words four letters in it when we sing it isn't there Yahweh those vowels don't exist in the Hebrew in the Hebrew it's just Y-H-W-H it's the most important four-letter word in the Bible it's so important by the way 
We have a name for it. There's a scholarly name for the name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. It's, it's, it's called the Tetragrammaton. So there's your really Im- impressive word. If you want to impress your friends this week with the $5 word, you got to study the Tetragrammaton at church. We did. It's just tetra means four, grammaton, we think of grammar, letters, four, it's, it's, it's the most important four-letter word in scripture. The tetragrammaton is Yahweh. So Jesus calms the storm. They think he can be a ghost, and he says, take heart, Yahweh. I am. Jesus is physically putting his deity on display because they had the wrong idea. They had too small of an idea as to who Jesus was. So he puts his deity physically on display by walking across the sea. And then Jesus verbally puts his deity on display. Some, some people try to criticize the Bible and criticize Jesus and say, well, he never claimed to be God. Well, where would you get that idea? Because all over scripture, he claims to be God. Those I am statements are very, very, very clear. He is verbally claiming his deity. And he does this in various ways, and and he does this physically in various ways in the New Testament. It's the point of the New Testament. I don't understand people that try to come up with that argument. Um, He's taught to us all over the New Testament as God in the flesh. But that's a pretty, pretty big truth to wrap your mind around, right? Even if you're one of his disciples and you're living with him every day, you're experiencing the miracles every day, you're hearing his teaching every day, to wrap your mind around that concept, if we can cut the disciples some slack, that's a pretty, pretty big truth. Let's continue in 51 and 52. It says, then he got in the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded for they did not understand the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Well, those hardened hearts were beginning to soften to the idea that he's something more than meets the eye. But did you notice that there's something missing in Mark? Now, we remember the gospel of Mark is Peter's account, right? John Mark is recording what Peter is telling him to write down under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is the apostle Peter who is giving us his account of the gospel, which is penned by John Mark. But what is missing in this moment when Jesus walks on water? Doesn't Peter get out of the boat? Doesn't Peter walk on water? It's not in the Gospel of Mark. When you read this in Matthew, we get the additional detail. So why why does Peter not mention, oh, I forgot to mention that time I got to walk on water? Like I just, this is again, I'm always looking for Peter's personality and I find him so inspirational in so many ways. But I, 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 we can only speculate as to why he doesn't put it in the gospel, in, in, the, in Mark's gospel. Like, uh, but is he kind of like, yeah, yeah, just kind of leave out those details. <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing because I, you know, sank. Uh, maybe it's that, or maybe it's just kind of like, you know what, this is my account. Uh, I don't, don't put that in there. I don't want to make much of me. I want to make much of Christ. And so maybe that's the detail. If, if, we, if you have a humble idea of, of Peter, if, if you want to bail him out that way. But let's, re- let's read it, though. If you turn to Mark, Matthew, I'm sorry, turn to Matthew 14. I just can't bring myself to preach through this moment of Jesus walking on water without reading the moment in which Peter asks to be commanded to go out onto the water with Jesus. And so this is immediately after, we're going to start in verse 28 of chapter 14. This is immediately after Jesus says, it is I, I am. 
says, And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to the water, uh, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took a hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? What a fascinating moment. I, I, it's like all in one moment we see this big faith by Peter, and then we see this little faith by Peter. This, this big faith, it is big and impressive faith, because he, he says, Jesus, if it's you, command me to walk out on the water with you. Why would he say that? Well, it's because Jesus had given him authority recently to do miracles. It's not out of the realm of possibility to Peter, right? And so Jesus had given him the authority to cast out demons. He's able to do that miraculously. Jesus had given him authority to heal lepers and raise people from the dead and heal people of all sorts of sickness and diseases. And so if that's possible, if that supernatural experience is possible, then this supernatural experience is possible. So Jesus, if it's you, give me the authority to do what you're doing as what's been happening recently. And so it makes perfect sense, but still to have the presence of mind to say that is just astounding. Peter's just ready to, he's just ready to rock and roll at any moment. That's what I love about Peter. And he steps out on the water. I mean, think about that first step that you would take to put pressure down on the surface of water. I mean, I think of a, of a couple times where my brain just won't let me do something that, I, that should be dangerous, but it's not. Like a, uh, my family and I went to the Sears Tower, the top, top floor here several years back, and they got like the glass that you can walk out on at the top of the Sears Tower so you can stand on glass. And that is the most deceivingly tall building ever. You get up there and you're looking down at all the other buildings. But when you step out on that glass, your brain is like, no, no don't know and so you have to just like overcome this mental anxiety that you have like that's safe uh, we, we Amanda and I even got a chance to to do the the Seattle Space Needle there and it's got a glass floor too and like if I freak out on those moments but you got to see Amanda in one of these moments she her mind will not let her do it it just will not let her do it she there <laughs> we were on the, at the Space Needle and I, I'm out there I finally convinced myself to walk on the glass you know and she's just like doing a little bit of this, like, is it real? Is that just air there? And like this like elderly 90-year-old couple comes strolling by just real casually. And it's like, they're doing, come on, follow the old couple. But your brain just won't let you do it. You think like, did, did Peter have a moment like that, right? When he gets out of the boat, this isn't what I should be doing right now. But if Jesus told me I can, I can be certain that the surface of that water is going to hold me up. And so he takes a step out onto the sea, and, and so when, it, you know, we don't know if he's shaking, we don't know what's going on, he, but he walks all the way to Jesus. What's, what was that distance like? What was going through his head at that moment? Well, that, that was a big moment of faith, just impressive. It's just amazing what God can do uh, with his followers when they, when they display I mean, God's ultimately the one that's impressive, right? Peter has this big moment of faith, but it's so impressive that in that big moment of faith, God can allow him to walk on water with Jesus. Boy, he doubts the wind and the waves, 
He takes his eyes off Jesus. We know how that sermon goes, right? And, and of course, he starts to sink, and he has a moment of little faith. He, he sinks. He starts to, to doubt. He starts to think, wait a second, this isn't possible. I shouldn't be here. This shouldn't be happening. It can't hold me up. And he starts sinking, and he cries out to the Lord to save him, and Jesus saves him. And he says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I commanded you to do it. You should have been 100% certain. Well, I think in that moment of little faith, though, we should still see how impressive God is. And this is what is so soothing to me in my walk of faith. What's so impressive about that moment of little faith is that God saves him. We tend to make the mistake of thinking that when we have big faith, God is more apt to love us. God is more able to save us if we have that big faith. But what do we see in Scripture? We see even in those moments of little faith, when we're doubting, when we don't think it's possible, when we hear the commandments of God but we don't think they're true, in those moments of little faith, that's what's so impressive and hopeful to me with regard to God is that he saves his people when they're in that frame of mind. Thank goodness that is the message of the gospel. Thank goodness. Because I don't feel like my faith is very big and impressive all the time. I don't think it's very big and impressive a lot of the time. It's often the case that my faith feels small. Sometimes I go through seasons, even as a pastor, where I'm just going through the motions. I know how to write a sermon without feeling I'm on a God high. I've learned how to do my job. I still go through seasons of little faith. I still go through moments in where, I, where I'm just doubting constantly. Is this, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to this isn't going to pan out right. There's no way God loves me. I'm not, I'm not performing well enough to be loved by God. There's, I, I'm not a good enough husband. I'm not a good enough dad. I'm not a good enough pastor. There's no way. I'm not, I'm not a good enough Christian. I'm not praying enough. I'm not getting away on a mountain to pray like Jesus. I'm pathetic compared to that. They, these, are the, these are the seasons that I go through sometimes. And maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you're in that right now. What's impressive about the God of the Bible, and make sure you have a scriptural view of him or you won't believe this, is that he saves you even when you're in that season. He, he is just as able to save you and love you when you're in that season of life than, than when you're in a big faith season of life, when you're all impressive and firing all cylinders and feel great when you come to church and everything's going right. God, can, God he's, he's faithful in all that. You and I, sometimes we go through seasons where we're completely faithless. And then sometimes we, we become more, more faithful, then we go, we go up and we go down, we go up. Jesus isn't like us in that regard. I think this is one of those moments where we got to remember that passage in Isaiah in which God's like, I don't think like you. We're not like each other in this regard. You go up and down and up and down. You feel like you got big faith, little faith. I'm always faithful. I'm perfectly faithful. I always love you. My love for you isn't determined by your performance. That should be the most freeing truth. We should constantly come back to that. Why does, why does God love us? He loves us because of the performance of his son. We're going to sink and doubt. His son is what saves us. We are loved 
based on the performance of Jesus, our Messiah. That's such a bigger deal than the five loaves of bread and two fish, such a bigger deal than the person healed of leprosy. Like we should be so much more caught up in the fact that God loves us no matter what than anything else, or we're going to fail to understand the magnitude as to who Jesus is. He loves us no matter what. Jesus is 100% righteous. He's completely sinless. That's the performance that qualifies us for the love of God. So when we stand before him on the judgment seat of Christ, I'm hoping in his righteousness, not my own. When when we think about God's love for us and, and his justice towards sin, Jesus paid the penalty in its entirety. All of my sins have been punished on the cross. That's my hope. He loves me because of Jesus, not because of me. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's go into a time of communion with that hope. And if you are in that season of low faith, where you're just barely keeping your head above water, then be spiritually nourished through the act of communion. And remember, God loves you. God loves you despite of you. He loves you because of his son. Let's pray. Lord, what an incredible moment to study in Scripture. What, what, what an incredible truth to know that you entered your creation to save us. That's how we know we can be saved because you have what it takes by virtue of being the creator. Lord, we are seen as righteous because of you, not because of us. We are seen as clean Our sins have been punished. They've been atoned for. All of that's because of you. Help us to rest in that today. Lord, I pray for those that are here today who are just barely treading water. They're they're dealing with so many stressful things in their life right now, and so many things are happening at the same time, Lord, that it just feels like their, their faith and their relationship with you is just something of the past or something that's just so far away, Lord, because they've not had time to be reoriented or not been focused enough to be reoriented through uh, the gospel lord but we draw near to you through the gospel we draw near to you through your son it's not based on our performance it's not based on how big our faith is lord it's solely based on you and you alone lord thank you for saving us in this incredible way so that we can be certain of our salvation and it's in your name jesus that we pray Thank you.